Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today I'm very happy to have Dr. John Horgan on the line with us and he is a professor, psychologist, terrorism researcher and the director of University of Massachusetts Lowell's Center for Terrorism and Security Studies. So thank you first of all for coming on the show Dr. Horgan. It's absolutely my pleasure Chelsea. I'm a huge fan of the Loopcast so thanks so much for having me on. And thank you for being a fan. That's fantastic. <laughs> So today we are going to talk about terrorism behavior and there's a lot that falls underneath that so it'll be a nice varied interesting talk. Why don't we start out with the psychology in general behind terrorism? Sure. Um, well, I often you know, try to start by defining psychology to my students. I mean, psychology very simply is the scientific study of, of human behavior and mental life. I mean, in, in a nutshell, it's about why we do what we do, how we do it, and, 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 and so forth. I think the, the two, uh, there are probably at least two defining characteristics of, of a psychological approach to something. And, and the first one is that, well, we typically tend to look at the individual level of analysis, so, so people essentially, single individuals or small groups. And the second issue is that methodology defines psychology. It's, it's one of the cornerstones of of. of anything to do with deciphering, uncovering, unraveling, um, I suppose, the mystery of human behavior. You can believe whatever you want to believe about why we do things, but the only thing that will settle a dispute between you and me is, 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 is evidence through methods. And looking at that with methodology defining psychology, when you're looking at terrorism, how do you go about that? What type of methodology do you use to define the psychology be t behind terrorism? Well, the psychology of terrorism, um, I suppose there are a number of um, avenues or outlets, I mean, or expressions of, for that. Um, for the most part, psychologists have asked and affects us in the short term, in the immediate aftermath of a, of a terrorist event, the drama, the anxiety that surrounds that. Um, surprisingly, there has been a significant amount of research on, 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 I suppose, the psychology of the terrorist, the person who becomes involved in terrorism and engages in terrorist acts. Um, we've seen some research in the 1970s, some in the 1980s, um, uh, and then we've seen a slight increase throughout the 90s and early 2000s. For the most part, that research has indirectly tapped into um, uh, you know, terrorist motivation, things that we call the radicalization process through basically analyzing what terrorists say about themselves, what they say about other people. And, 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 and from a methodological perspective, we have analyzed statements, um, public statements, private statements, autobiographies, um, uh, all of the kinds of ways in which we might get insights into uh, why it is that people seek to join these movements. And that's, that's probably been the, the main um, emphasis in terms of psych psychological research uh, on, on the terrorist. It has to do with issues to do with um, becoming involved in terrorism, the hows and the whys. A common thing that you tend to hear from a general person when you discuss terrorism or there's a terrorist attack and it's in the news is this idea that terrorists are 
psychologically abnormal or insane, crazy. Is that a myth? I think it's not a myth. I mean, I think I think what is unhelpful is the idea that ment- mental illness can somehow help us explain terrorism. I think it can't. It would be misleading to say that there are no uh, 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 mentally ill people involved in terrorist activity. I mean, there clearly are. I mean, it's just the law of averages. You're bound to get some individuals who suffer from mental illness. You're certainly bound to get in some of the bigger movements, um, uh, like we're seeing with um, ISIL, for instance, you're bound to have at least some element of psychopathy. But for the most part, I think mental illness is a very poor um, uh, explanatory factor in terms of how and why people become involved in terrorism. And we know we, we increasingly we're seeing that mental illness is something that is um, very often a consequence of having spent time in a terrorist movement. People become very deeply affected by um, prolonged life in a in a terrorist movement. And on that point, is it similar to say soldiers that have gone off to war? So, for instance, we have a lot of soldiers returning from Afghanistan and Iraq, and we have this PTSD. Is it on a similar level that you've experienced these horrific instances? Um, I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair analogy. I mean, I, I wouldn't see any good reason to, um, to see why that wouldn't be the case. I mean, there, there have been no studies to my knowledge, um, identifying PTSD in a, in a, uh, a sample of former terrorists, but, um, uh, you know, I mean, I can, I can, I can, like many of my colleagues, can tell you anecdotally that that many of the people whom we've been fortunate to to access and speak to about their experiences in terrorism do suffer as a result. They suffer during their time uh, uh, as active terrorists, and they also suffer when they when they try to disengage or when they have rather disengaged from the group. So, mental illness and terrorism are. I think related in 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 ways that are a bit more complex than we've been giving them credit for. But but for the most part, you know, for about the first fifteen twenty years of of, of terrorism, I think the, the whole area has been, um, in the words of my colleague Andrew Silk, he said that it's been tainted by this aura of pathology that 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 really has not not been very helpful in terms of helping us understand who becomes a terrorist and why. And on that point, again, there's another thing that you tend to hear in a lot of articles in, in the media, let's put it that way, that there's this assumption that terrorists are morally disengaged from society. In cases that you looked at, is this something that you're seeing? Is it something you're not? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, moral disengagement is a tricky one. Um, certainly, uh, you, you know, in, in a lot of the psychological analyses I've seen, and, and in a lot of accounts of former terrorists, I often see terrorists very, very regularly referring to answering their conscience. You know, they say that well, um, their decision to take up arms basically reflects a moral. Um, or political awakening. I was blind and now I see. Uh, I was asleep, now I'm, I'm awake. They very much see it as, as a du- their duty to take up arms in defense of, of, of those who can't help themselves. I've often thought that, you know, in order to be um, an effective terrorist, you have to be able to suppress morality. You have to be able to suppress doubt and to suppress um, uh, guilt. Um, and there are lots of ways in which 
active terrorists do that. You certainly have to be very good at shifting responsibility um, for what you do as a terrorist. And there is a, so there is a certain element of moral disengagement in this. One of the things um, uh, that you know, we learned from some of the very early research on social psychology, especially uh, you might be familiar with the famous Milgram experiments where he had um, uh, uh, electric shocks being delivered to a um, uh, to to um, uh, uh, students was that the so-called teachers, the people who who thought they were giving electric shocks, uh, in reality they weren't. They would very very quickly um, uh, accept a sort of subordinate role whenever they would start to experience discomfort. So, in other words, they would they would pull out of the experiment much earlier when when the real authority figure wasn't around, and we very much see those kinds of dynamics being played out in in terrorist movements as well. One one of the most um, striking examples of that that I that I've seen in the last few years was during the uh, the Mumbai siege. It's one of the few terrorist attacks where we actually have access to the the, the timeline. And the transcripts of communications, where where the leaders are are nudging uh, the attackers all the time to to focus on the minutia of what they're doing. They're saying, you know, no, no, don't 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 digress from what you're doing. Don't lose focus. Keep keep you know keep the attention um, uh, keep the attention here. Keep the attention there. And 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 essentially, moral disengagement being played out in real time. It was astonishing. That must be very interesting to look at, actually. So. Why don't we look at this idea of the drive to terrorism? So sure. we're, we're hearing a lot about this right now with these young individuals that are getting compelled to travel to Syria and be a part mm-hmm. of the Islamic State and ISIS. So, I mean, as you mentioned, and as a, a lot of literature on this topic has mentioned, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint why an individual will become a terrorist Sure. Um, because everybody has their different reasons for going off and joining a fight or the jihad, so to speak. But in the cases you've worked on, what are some of the motivations that you've come across? Oh, gosh, happy to talk about that okay. issue. I think uh, to, 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 to pick up on something you said, though, I mean, you know, you're right. It's very difficult to do um, valid and reliable research on these issues. But But the main reason I think we don't know enough about terrorist motivation is that I don't think the science is there yet. Um, uh, you know, we talk about issues to do with terrorist psychology or the psychology of terrorism, whatever we call it, but there are still very, very few people doing research on this and, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. But to answer your question, I, I think the motivational spectrum is probably the same across the world um, and no matter what terrorist movement we're looking at. Um, it's 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 diverse in the sense that there are always going to be lots of different factors at play. Um, it's complicated or complex rather in the sense that the, you know, the, the unique combination of factors is going to change from person to person. And it's, it's probably going to change within the same person over time. But, but to me, I think there, there's two sets of issues here. Um, the first is that you know, we have we have a, a laundry list of things that we might refer to as as risk factors or, or push and pull factors, in the words of some analysts. And and these are you know these will be very familiar to you. The kinds of things you'll see in media accounts all the time. Um, you know, uh, uh, adventurism, excitement, camaraderie, belonging, a sense of duty, a sense of outrage, um, and closely related to that, the idea of wanting to to get revenge. 
altruism, disillusionment, humiliation. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Um, those kinds of things you you know will will inevitably, I suppose, vary from person to person. But but like I said, um, you know, they don't they don't tend to be validated. We just don't have the studies to be able to say with certainty that we're more likely to see these risk factors for these kinds of groups um, uh, versus others. The second issue, though, um, and it's something I think we've seen a lot more interesting research done on, is to is 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 qualities of of the process that they experience, you know, in in being radicalized, in being recruited to these to these movements. Um, we certainly see some some more meaningful common denominators there. So there is there is um, a, a, a fiercely common thread in certainly in foreign fighters right now, where is where there is this compulsion to act, to to do something rather than just talk about it. Uh, and and you know we can explain that through any number of lenses, but um, helping fellow Muslims in need is a very common theme. Um, I think it was I think it was um, Tom Heghammer uh, who had this lovely description one time. He said, you know, foreign fighters basically see themselves as aid workers with Kalashnikovs, and that sort of image really <laughs> resonated with me. And then there's almost like a, a millenarian quality here whereby, whereby um, foreign fighters are encouraged, encouraged to act now before it's too late. Um, so there are all kinds of qualities that are associated with the process there. And the reason I think it's important to look at the process as opposed to you know, individual risk factors is that what happens when people become involved in terrorism is that a lot of the, the individual differences, the, the idiosyncr- idiosyncrasies, they tend to get flattened out the more time you spend in one of these groups. So, you know, some pretty diverse people eventually will start to speak the same language. They'll start to behave in the same ways, uh, engage in the same kinds of rituals. So essentially, the more time you spend in one of these groups, the more essentially the group changes you. And that's just that's basic social psychology, you know, being played out here. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you do see this camaraderie um, type of feeling and accounts when you when you look especially at foreign fighters going to Syria and, and some of these young people that are speaking for their motive they're speaking of their motivations of why they have gone over um, hugely so and 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 you know we, we certainly have no shortage of access to uh, some of those accounts but but we're only ever really getting just the tip of the iceberg I mean you know I, I, it's almost cliche to say this as a psychologist but you know, motivation is a very 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 complicated um, uh, issue and 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 these kinds of risk factors, these common themes. I mean, they'll they'll vary. They will vary even for the same person um, across time. Another common thing that I've heard in cases, not just with Syria, of course, but a broad spectrum, is this idea of the drive to terrorism stemming from frustration in a person's life. So not finding roots within their social progress, um, education, jobs, uh, career-wise, social environment, not fitting in with their social environment. And um, then there's this idea of, especially in the UK, the idea of second-generation UK citizens, but maybe their family came from Bangladesh or Pakistan, and Mm -hmm. therefore they don't quite fit into their family's social mindset, social 
drive and they don't always sure. fit in with the general young UK society as well. And so they, they tend to get more radicalized with religion. Like they'll wear much more conservative clothes compared to their parents. So how much of this has become a factor in this drive to terrorism that maybe you've seen in cases that you've studied? I think it's very relevant. I mean, it's certainly relevant right now in cases of, of, of us trying to understand why there might be differential rates of radicalization and recruitment, um, uh, you know, with respect to the foreign fighter phenomenon. But, but something that I've seen across um, uh, some of the cases I've studied have, have been this, this idea of, of second generation or third generation, um, uh, whether it is um, uh, a, a British-based second generation a Pakistani kid who's being encouraged to go off to Pakistan or Afghanistan, or even, surprisingly, even... Uh, 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 an Irish Republican that grows up in the south of Ireland but is being sort of lured to the north of the country to have taken part in the conflict there. There is this, I think one of the terrorists I once interviewed described it as as, as a, a dynamite mix where you are second or third generation and you are being told by a recruiter that that you are a conquered people and it provides an impetus for you to go and act and to to, to essentially... Um, fulfill what you know in a, in a different context we would refer to as the neglected duty and it's it, it is a very 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 common thread that 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 i see in very different kinds of groups as well and sort of building on that point which as you said um, with the ira case how does displacement of aggression factor all into all of this so right now we're seeing it more as this idea of east versus west Christian, not Christianity, but the Western world against Islam. Um, but as you said, with the, the case, the Irish case, that, that could kind of play into it as well. So how much does this factor into the drive to terrorism? Well, in a way, it's almost like the issue of, of, of you know, feeling displaced and feeling alienated and feeling conquered. An effective terrorist recruiter will be able to harness that uh, disenfranchisement and will be able to not only convince the, the potential recruit of the need to act, but also the need to act with violence, that this is the only response, that this is not just the only response, but it is a defensive move against the forces of evil. So, so it, it very much features in the kinds of narratives we've seen used by um, uh, used by recruiters for sure and then looking at the idea of the justification of the act of terrorism what are the ideas in the minds of terrorists that you have studied and interviewed of the morality the justification behind doing acts of terrorism what have you come across Great question. I think in some ways it goes back to that issue you asked me about earlier about moral disengagement. Um, uh, you know, Albert Bandura um, very often made the point that if you want to understand moral disengagement and if you want to understand the justification of these kinds of activities, you have to pay attention to language. Now, now Bandura looked at that in the context of, of dehumanization, but um, uh, I really started to, to pay attention to this as a psychologist when I was looking at some of the um, Al-Qaeda documents that came out around about 
Oh, uh, I think it was 2003, 2004. Um, and they are, they are, whether or not this is true, I don't know, but they are at least attributed to, um, uh, Saif Al-Adl, the, um, uh, the former, um, uh, Egyptian special forces officer who became involved with, with Al-Qaeda. And there was a wonderful, um, series of documents where, um, the author, whether it was Al-Adl or somebody else, um, made the point in, in appealing to, um, uh, the Al-Qaeda membership. He said, um, uh, and if I can remember the quote, he said, we differ completely from our enemy in the psychological fight. And he basically uh, said that, you know, we don't suffer as much psychologically in this because we don't make it mandatory for people to join the military. We don't make it mandatory for people to have to come and uh, uh, and fight. So he's basically drawing on a, a, this, this relative position between our motivation and their motivation. And he talked about the difference between... Um, uh, what it meant to be, uh, you know, the, 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 what he called the true motivation of the mujahideen and their ability to handle these these very 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 difficult tasks. We often see as well a common theme in in especially when terrorists themselves talk to us about you know how they how they basically cope with what they do. They engage in in neutralization techniques. So they will deny responsibility. They will denigrate the victim. Um, they will they will. Um, they will. Um, what one research said, researcher said was, they'll condemn the condemners. They'll basically say, "Well, you know, how dare you condemn this for us when you yourselves are responsible for um, uh, something um, far worse?" And they'll also um, a, t- a typical neutralization technique. And you'll hear is they'll also appeal to a, a higher loyalty. So they'll talk about the obligation to engage in this kind of an act, whether it is violent jihad or something else. And. So it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but 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 there are there are certainly identifiable um, patterns behind the way in which people respond to these sorts of questions, for sure. And at the starting of the talk, you did mention that you've interviewed past individuals that have been involved in terrorism in, in groups, and that mm-hmm. they've had a really hard time coping with acts that they've either witnessed or potentially done. So, so some of them have, some yeah. Of them. Some of them, I mean, um, uh, quite a few have 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 had great difficulty in coping with um, the reality, and I suppose the reality of, of of reintegration, the reality of being away from the group, and and the reality of looking back at at a history of a history of violence that that is um, you know now unjustifiable to them. But there are others as well. I mean, I, I've certainly interviewed my fair share of. Um, ex-terrorists or and would-be active terrorists who um, who seem perfectly comfortable with what they've done. And so, this idea that you you mentioned the the factors that help validate acts of terrorism, the different mechanisms to validate mm-hmm. it to both the world and the terrorists themselves. Looking at it, I guess in a sense, if if you're very a person that can very much cut off your feelings, maybe it might work, but on the other hand, is it almost just a way of talking yourself into it, so to speak? So, as it an, is. Yeah, as it an is. example. That's, that's a nice way of describing it. It, it, it is about allowing yourself to become, uh, you know, social psychologists might use the word de-individuated. You allow the group to take over. You allow 
um, you allow any any doubts you might have about doing this act to be to be essentially sublimated within the group. It is the group that accepts responsibility for for what it is you do. Um, so that that's very very common for sure. And some people find it very difficult. You know, you talked at the very beginning about about some of the myths. It is a myth that terrorists do not feel guilt for what they do. I, I can tell you they most certainly do, but some are better at suppressing that guilt than others. So to me, it sounds like it really is an individual factor that each person individually has a way of dealing with it or maybe not dealing with it so so well. Certainly, yeah. And some some deal with it by... Um, you know, getting drunk. Some deal with it by um, uh, smoking drugs. Some deal with it by further immersing themselves in the ideology. Some deal with it by um, basically saying to um, uh, senior figures, look, uh, I, I don't really know what I've bought into here. And they're not trying to get out of the group, but they are trying to shift to another role within the movement that they might be more um, suited to. I've certainly spoken to a number of individuals who who made it very, very clear that they were deeply committed to the movement, but that that you know frontline activity, engaging in 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 up close and personal um, uh, aggression, just wasn't for them. Then another thing that you do here within the media or people that are asking questions, especially with everything that's once again taking place in Syria and Iraq, is this factor of religion and many terrorist movements in the past have also had a religious aspect to them. I mean, how much can we look at religion and ideology behind the group and what they're portraying their religion as, as a major factor for the psychology of that group and the individuals that are a part of it? It's a good question. I think it's certainly relevant. I mean, I think there, there, there are very deeply polarized discussions about, you know, whether or not this is a religious phenomenon or it is or, or, or it's not. And that discussion tends to be um, uh, very much polarized. There's no question that religious ideology is drawn on as a justification. What we're less clear about is the role of religious ideology as a motivating factor. There are some who who, who, who clearly are exposed to um, uh, certain religious ideological content that is used very, very cleverly and very um, efficiently by recruiters to basically um, uh, mobilize someone that would otherwise just be radical and, and wouldn't necessarily engage in terrorism. But for others who initially might become involved in a group through um, thrill-seeking or, 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 or adventurism or, or just wanting to engage in what they view as essentially a humanitarian act, um, altruism in their eyes, religious content might become, um, uh, I suppose it might become relevant for them only after the fact. We very, very often see that. People who aren't necessarily religious when they become involved in the group, well, six months, 12 months, 18 months down the road, they start to um, to spew religious content. Very often, it's, it's typically, it's cliched, it's parroted, it's not really understood on a deep level. But it's certainly used as, as, as something quite empowering to sustain their involvement, to sustain their commitment. Um, after the thing that we don't really understand well is, 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 is the behavioral sequencing here. So do people, first of all, become religious and then seek out involvement in terrorism? Do they, or, or is it the other way around? We haven't quite figured that out yet. 
But I think it's it's very, very important to see religion here as just one other kind of ideology. Very much so. And then going back to, you alluded to the foreign fighter, which has been an interesting topic that has been quite relevant lately again. You know, we see, we hear about foreign fighters going to Syria. And how much of that in your research have you seen this phenomenon of foreign fighters attached and involved in other terrorist groups and terrorist organizations? And of course, you know, you everyone will think of Afghanistan, but yeah. past Afghanistan. So I know you did a lot of work with Ireland and the IRA. Did we, or did you see anything like this phenomenon happen with the IRA or Sri Lanka, Tamil Tigers? I mean, there's a numerous amount of groups, but do you see a connection? It's a good, great, great question. I think, I think certainly no connection in terms of the scale of what we're witnessing now. Although if, if you really want a sort of a, an historical parallel here, I mean, you've got to go back to the international brigades. I mean, you know, the numbers there far exceeded even what we're seeing with, with ISIS right now. But, but, but no question. I mean, when I, when I first started doing research on terrorism and I did my PhD in Ireland, I was interviewing a lot of, of, of IRA members who were, you know, they grew up in the south of Ireland. And, you know, Ireland is a, is a tiny, tiny country, but, um, um, uh, you know, to, to grow up in the south of Ireland meant that, mentally speaking, you were, you were a million miles removed from, from the troubles in the north. And, and the IRA recruited a lot of people from the south who had no real experience of what it meant to, to live in a deeply divided sectarian society. And so, I was interviewing these guys and asking them about, you know, trying to tap into their motivation. And they said, you know, they were brought up on, on tales of, um, you know, adventurous um, uh, 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 fights against the British and, 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 and you know, running gun battles in, in, uh, across beautiful hedgerows and this kind of nonsense. When they got there and they realized that, that a lot of people were becoming involved for purely sectarian reasons, that this was, this was a very um, uh, ugly conflict. Um, they started to become disillusioned because it wasn't what it didn't fit with their fantasy about what it meant to be involved. Now, the question that I've only relatively recently started to explore is whether or not um, those kinds of dynamics may or may not be similar to what what today we would describe as as a foreign fighter uh, as the foreign fighter phenomenon. Um, it might might seem a very odd kind of thing to make that parallel, but certainly the the juxtaposition between the fantasy and the reality um, is, is very striking in both cases. And I've seen the same thing play out in in in, in some, um, uh, like I said, second generation British Pakistanis who 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 went to Afghanistan via Pakistan, and uh, and they thought, you know, um, this is not quite what I signed up for. So um, whether they would be examples of foreign fighters, I'm sure some would agree and others might disagree, but, but, but certainly in terms of the, the dynamics and the effects, lots and lots of similarities. I think a perfect way to take the talk to another topic that I know you've worked extremely hard in this subject is disengagement and de-radicalization, which are very important in this talk because there are a whole other part of psychology and terrorism. Sure. So briefly, why don't you just to start off with give our listeners a look at what these terms basically mean. So they're they're purely basic meanings of disengagement and de-radicalization in this context. 
Absolutely. So very basically, disengagement means stopping terrorist activity. Um, de-radicalization implies um, one unlearns certain attitudes and certain beliefs that we assume are conducive to engagement in terrorism. The other meaning attributed to de-radicalization is that it's a it's a um, quite a misleading collective term used to describe a variety of of um, uh, initiatives aimed at reducing the risk of re-engagement in terrorism. Um, uh, I suppose disengagement from ma- or sorry. I'm getting confused by my own terms. De-radicalization is synonymous with a number of very high-profile programs that have aimed at, um, that were aimed at essentially trying to change the minds of terrorist prisoners in the, under the assumption that if we change the way they think, that that, that in turn reduces the risk of them re-engaging in terrorist activity. And why don't we discuss what is being done to disengage and de-radicalize fighters. So you've alluded to certain programs. Um, you know, how many programs are there? I, I've heard that there are not enough and that we need to build more here in the States and overseas. And you, you hear different governments alluding to this idea. But what is being done at the moment and what has been done in the past? And have there been successes in this I don't think anybody really knows how many programs there are. Um, I I once asked um, just about three or four months ago uh, how many CVE programs there are and and the the person to whom I was asking the question just laughed me out of the room. Um, She didn't know and nobody knew in her her organization. There are are lots and lots of de-radicalization programs ongoing around the world right now. Um, Some of them are quite big. Some of them are are quite well-resourced. I suppose the Saudi Rehabilitation Program would be the best known of these. And others are tiny. They're being done on a shoestring budget, and they are being done without the intention of necessarily... Um, um, exposing themselves to to the to, to the broader world. In fact, the Saudi program, which is, you know, now I think unfairly held up in the West as sort of the poster child for DRAD programs, that in itself was was never intended to be made public. But I think they were so confident of their own successes in the past that they decided to to try to convey that they had a template for success here. Um, there are. Um, Lots of different kinds of initiatives, lots of different ways in which um, this this cottage industry of programs is trying to prevent re-engagement in terrorism. Only some of those programs are actually drawing on uh, the idea of de-radicalization. Um, and ironically, some of the some of the most effective programs I've seen really don't bother with de-radicalization. They don't they don't waste their time trying to change people's views, change people's attitudes. Nor do they waste their time trying to evaluate if that change has actually taken place. They're far more um, focused on on the challenge of reintegration than than de-radicalization per se. And 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 I suppose the reason I I, I started to um, look at these terms, you know, it's not just because I'm an academic and that's the kind of thing we do, but because I was finding that a lot of people disengage from terrorism without necessarily needing to de-radicalize. 
And in places like um, uh, Pakistan and elsewhere, I'm seeing a lot of people disengage from the Pakistani Taliban and other um, uh, uh, militant movements in that region. And, and, and de-radicalization per se doesn't even feature into what these programs are doing. And yet, at the same time, these programs are very effective in, 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 in preventing and minimizing, rather, the risk of, of, of these adolescents and young men re-engaging in terrorism. And looking at these programs then, so if they're not necessarily trying to de-radicalize and change someone's beliefs and views, mm-hmm. is this disengagement and initiating them back into society and life of wherever their home country is or wherever they've landed, so to speak, is that just right there, a way that slowly as they integrate into their surroundings, they start to de-radicalize on their own? Has that happened? That, that is the, I think that's a working assumption, which is about, you know, it's, so, so some of the most effective programs I've seen are, they certainly, I mean, you know, they're not naive. I mean, they're certainly a very um, strong aftercare, uh, post-release monitoring um, uh, activity that goes on. But it is about providing people with the necessary skills, resources, and social networks to basically enable them to reintegrate into society. And it's about ensuring that there are enough protective factors there to um, uh, to protect them from victimization from a number of different uh, Interestingly enough, I was speaking to somebody earlier on uh, today about this, a journalist, and we were, we were comparing the foreign fighter phenomenon and how we might prepare for um, the challenge of reintegration there. There are parallels even back as far as the international brigades of the early 1920s where a lot of those guys faced the same kinds of challenges. There certainly was no nothing um, that could be said to be similar to an effort to de-radicalize them, but there were huge challenges with respect to um, uh, what, re- what proper, meaningful reintegration meant. And I, I, I really don't think we've had that discussion um, to any great extent in the West. There's some really, really interesting programs ongoing in, in Europe right now, especially in Denmark, where they take a very, very pragmatic view about the fact that, you know, hey, at least in the first wave of foreign fighters that have gone out, it is very plausible that that, that disillusionment can be, can be genuinely detected and genuinely assessed and that that can lead to thrown in prison for the rest of their life. So looking at this idea of de-radicalization programs, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are skeptical of this idea of bringing, say, foreign fighters from Syria that have done violent acts back to their home countries with the idea of de-radicalizing them and then letting them back into society. So looking at that, what type of opinions do you have for these skeptics? What type of advice? I would say embrace your skepticism. I mean, I would be terribly skeptical of these efforts as well. Um, At the same time, however, I mean, I would be one of the greatest um, champions for genuine efforts at, at reducing the risk of re-engagement in terrorism. I'm, I'm reluctant to use the term de-radicalization because I think that de-radicalization is a fool's errand. I think it really is um, just smoke and mirrors for the most part. We, we, I think one, one of the first things we have to start um, appreciating is that not all terrorists are created equal. We have, we have dreamers, we have fantasists, we have people who went out there motivated by genuine humanitarian concerns 
and were essentially um, hoodwinked and fooled into engaging with ISIS. That said, there are also people who, who want to go to Syria because they want to cut people's heads off. I mean, you know, ISIS is nothing if not a, uh, an equal opportunities terrorist movement. But with respect to, to preparing for pot potential returnees, we have to start serious discussions now about how we engage in effective terrorist risk assessment. And we have to ask questions like, well, you know, how, how, much, risk, how much risk are we actually willing to tolerate? Or, or, you know, we, we have some risk standards in some areas, but, but in terrorism, it's very, very difficult to see that even, even the smallest degree of risk is seen as tolerable. This is very often why, you know, when you look at critiques of de-radicalization programs and even the ones that point to allegedly 80, 90, 95% success rates, you only have to have one high-profile event for, 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 a, for a program to essentially be labeled as, as a failure. But, but I, I think we know very, very little about what it means to engage in risk assessment of, 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 of terrorists. Looking at these programs, I would think there would be a huge legal aspect. I'm, I'm sure every country, they all have, of course, their own legal systems. But say looking at the legal aspect of de-radicalization programs here in the States, I mean, there must be a lot of obstacles for people involved in these programs. Well, well, there are, but I mean, in, in, in certainly in, in places like Saudi and in, um, well, Yemen to a lesser extent, but Pakistan, um, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, these programs take place within uh, custodial settings, so prisons essentially. Um, uh, surprisingly, there, there are um, few real obligations to um, participate in the programs, but um, uh, there would be, there would be, profound legal issues around them, of course. Um, but, but again, it all goes back to, to even just asking the question, well, what, you know, when we talk about risk and risk of re-engaging or risk of being released from prison and doing something, well, what are we talking about? I mean, you know, terrorism isn't one specific behavior. It's, it's, it's a multiplicity of different things. So if a, if a former does that constitute recidivism? Well, well, and on one level maybe, but on another level clearly not. But there are issues around, um, you know, severity, frequency, imminence. You know, how how soon, how soon might we think there is a risk of them reengaging in something today, tomorrow, next year, ten years from now? We haven't even begun to ask these questions. Hmm. And then, looking at once again on this topic of programs set up for let's call them returnees if we're using the Syrian example. Sure. How can these returnees help disenfranchise and fight ISIS's message by being involved in these de-radicalization programs? And as you mentioned, there's accounts of young individuals that have gone, signed up. You know, they're not, they don't think they've, what they, what the reality is is not what they signed up for, so to speak. And so how can they be brought back to their home countries and used to help disenfranchise this message and the media that the Islamic State is promoting at the moment? Well, I think the first challenge falls on us to, 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 to screen out the insincere uh, returnees from those that are sincerely disillusioned. I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for a, um, a foreign fighter to claim that, that he or she 
is 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 increasingly disillusioned with what ISIS is 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 putting out there because you know now I mean ISIS is we all know what they're doing we all know what they are about we all know what their nature is um, I think we need to do a far better job at providing a um, a space whereby uh, returnees or formers can essentially help um, uh, delegitimize the efforts that ISIS recruiters are are, are using either in the online space or in in real life. To pull people in, I mean, it is essentially about returning, but with better four or five years about counter narratives. But it goes way beyond this sort of this this naive war of ideas type stuff. And certainly, the religious arguments we will lose every single time. But it is about, um, you know, it's about exposing hypocrisy. It's about exposing lies. It's about exposing. Um, 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 the unpleasantness of it. And it's not about trying to delegitimize the very real grievances people have. I think that's the key message that seems to be missed time and time again. To bring this talk to a close, we always like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch upon something that we haven't touched upon in the talk, or if there's a final statement you'd like to provide. So I'd like to open the floor to you. Oh, gosh, thank you. Um, I don't know, really. Uh, I, I... I started this, um, I think one of the first answers I gave you was, was almost a, not quite an apology, but, but to say that the science isn't there. And, and, I, and I keep saying this. Um, we are, you know, Mark Sageman two or three years ago memorably said that the terrorism research has become just stagnant. And, and I think he's dead wrong in many ways, but, but he has a point in the sense that we we seem to be circling around again and again and again to the same kinds of issues, the same kinds of problems, and we keep bemoaning the fact that we just don't have enough evidence. My real fear with respect to, 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 to terrorist psychology is that we could leave this area, or I could leave this area, and come back in 10 years, and we still wouldn't have any better answers to these questions. There are so few people doing research in terrorist psychology. We really need to do a far better job of, of, of essentially, you know, grooming our own next generation of scholars here. And um, so I, I don't want to end on a pessimistic note, but, but to say that that's it's something that's very important to me. And, uh, and, and, and hopefully our, our science will improve. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and your wonderful knowledge on this topic and for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.